Oh man. So I, I guess we launched. We launched. Yeah. Um We launched the podcast, our first <laughs> ever podcast. We are now officially podcasters, the worst people in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> I expect every one of you who are listening to this to have a podcast before 2019 is out. That's, that's apparently the thing to do. That's right. We can all communicate with each other in podcasts. Uh, you know, you can ask us questions in your podcast and we'll answer them and ask you questions in ours. It'll be great. I mean, we're getting a late start to this trend. No harm in you starting even later. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Obviously, those first three episodes we recorded uh, uh, ahead of schedule, but now the the clock is ticking. We we have to do this with some regularity. Yeah, and, uh, and the first three episodes have been doing really well. Thank you so much to everyone out there who's been listening and subscribing and rating us on iTunes. More of that, please. Um, and uh, and reviewing us and all of that. Thank you. You're helping us so much because we really need to get this story out there. Yeah. Uh, I I guess I'm I'm still going to hide in the shadows here and and not not actually encourage you to promote us but no, that's we need to get the story out there <laughs> yeah. because this it's... week I've told this story in person again like 7 or 8 times and my voice is ragged as you can probably hear, because I keep having to tell the story. So I need the podcast to get so big that I never have to tell <laughs> the fucking story ever again. Uh, yeah. Um, well, but- I, I don't think that's how these things work. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, to your point, um, uh, we're we're actually we're recording this a couple days early mm-hmm. because you're pretty busy this week. Yeah. Um, tomorrow I'm leaving for Portland and I'm going to be there all weekend. And tonight is the only night uh, we had free to record because this week a play that I did sound design for, Hype Man at Interact Theatre here in Philadelphia, just opened. So we had opening night last night and an after party where everyone asked me what I was up to and I had to tell them at length about the goddamn theatre. So uh, let's let's continue. Yeah. Yeah, real quick. Plug, Hype Man, uh, a breakbeat play uh, written by Idris Goodwin and directed by my wonderful friend, Ozzy Jones. I love working with him. And it's playing at the Drake Theater here in Philly until February 17. So please go check it out. Take a seat. You're in the bug house. So we left off in the last episode um, with the discovery of the sherd, the pottery sherd that had the word navigation written into the glaze. Yeah. Um, And how I remember you got very excited. Um, My inner nerd totally erupted. I'm like, (laughs) wait, wait, this is... This is really something different. Um, I think I gushed enough about that at the end of the last episode. That's true. Yeah, yeah. But I cannot <laughs> but, I mean, overstate <laughs> like how weird I got. Yeah. Over this. Yeah. Because it was it was stunning. Um, you know the listing. It, you find a pattern in in Philadelphia real estate listings. Uh, if they don't know when a building is built, it's just listed as being built in 1905. Right. Uh, the thing, right? <laughs> yeah. And we didn't, you know, in our, our early research, we, we just knew that it was a pretty old building. But yeah. this, yeah, this 
totally changed uh, just the whole viewpoint on this. And so we kept uh, kept poking around. Yeah. Um, and I think I Matt was kept looking inside the uh, the pit that the construction people had dug uh, that was meant to hold the footing for the columns that would eventually uh, support the steel that we had to put in. So you remember that we had asked our uh, contractor, Larry, could we poke around in those pits? And Larry said, you can poke around, but you shouldn't do too much because the pits are going to form the edges of this concrete footing. So you don't want to disturb the shape of the pits Mm -hmm. too badly. So Matt and I were kind of paranoid about doing something that would jeopardize our construction in any way, because as you remember, construction is extremely expensive and we were paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to have this done. Right. This is literally the foundation for a steel frame <laughs> like I, I'm so out of my depth right and uh, well I remember you would you just kept looking in the pit yeah and one of the things I don't even remember how um, but I had thrown my back out uh, I, I'm at my point in my mid 30s I guess this is when these things happen <laughs> um, and and so while we were working uh, uh, up above on, on ground level I kept looking into the pit and uh, I, it was it was the call of the void. Uh, I, I well, because you spotted something. Down yeah. Well, there. I, I mean, I think this was probably the point where I was explaining to you the privies right. and what they were, right? And uh, how they're full of stuff. And and I look, and you can see just like uh, the stratification in the dirt, like the different uh, different layers of of what is clearly nitrogen rich poo dirt. <laughs> um, but also, I could see things in it but i couldn't jump down in there because i was just not in a good way so mm-hmm. i'm i'm like sitting on the edge kicking my feet down right and- i'm sort of trying to be the voice of reason and saying you know well larry said we couldn't do too much to the pits or you know we should maybe we shouldn't go down there he was also very concerned about safety mm. and us going in there um but eventually you know we were we had retired some distance from the pit to take a break Mm -hmm. and I looked at Matt's face (laughs) and he looked so crestfallen and so like he wanted something he couldn't have I mean it was written so clearly on his face so I remember (laughs) I'm also trying to be good (laughs) (laughs) so I remember I looked at you and I was like Matt do you want me to go in the pit and dig that thing out? And <laughs> Well, that thing, just to walk it back, um, while I had been looking and shining, you know, our phone flashlights uh, into this pit, because it's, it, you know, it's a dead building. It's perfectly dark. There was a string of construction lights oh, in this right. space. Yeah, right, Larry right, right. had left us this string of like it's basically light bulbs attached to an extension cord. So it was lit like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, it was a super scary. <laughs> like uh, we're hanging out with a bunch of grave-sized holes and uh, dirt everywhere, and bones and pottery. <laughs> and and I look down, and there's there's a big object like right at the bottom of one side of the pit. There's something down there and I'd spotted it and I was like, ah. It's shiny and dark. Yeah. Since I can't get down there and Melissa and I have this conversation and she's like, do you want me to go in the pit? Yeah. And <laughs> and I'm uh, the way I work, somebody, you know, 
offers me candy. Oh, do you want some of this? I see a pile of candy on their desk and, and I'm thinking like, I would love that. <laughs> and somebody says, oh, w- would you like some chocolate? I'm like, yes, absolutely. Meanwhile, you're pulling faces that if anybody knows you, is <laughs> it's the, I want the candy face. I'm so sad because I'm not being offered candy. So I, I, I kind of say, well, okay, you want me to go and do this? And Matt gives this very quick, but very quiet, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, so I jump down in there. Um, I'm wearing my, my overalls and my Rosie the Riveter headscarf. And, and I give you my camera because it's the better of the two cell phone cameras. Right. I'm like, just, just take pictures. Well, and I'm taking pictures and I'm brushing the dirt aside from this thing and it's very clearly a wine bottle similar to the broken one that I found um, the the first day, uh, like two days previously, when we when we um, discovered the artifacts in the first place. Uh, but it's in much better shape. It looks like it's all there. Yeah, she pulls this thing out, and it's an entire wine bottle, except <laughs> except where the shovels. From the folks digging this pit. From our construction workers. Hit the wine bottle and cracked it. So it's just a little chip crack in the corner of the wine bottle that that juts out into the the shape of the pit. And when I say the complete wine bottle, this includes um, what I'm guessing is cork, but the stopper yeah, is the, there too. The remains of a cork stopper. Um, there's no liquid in there no. that that's long gone, but like, <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Suddenly, we get the fever. Yeah, like, so when you pull something out of dirt or, you know, decomposed shit <laughs> um, and you hold it up and it's this wine bottle that hasn't seen the light of day in hundreds of years and it's yours because you found it on your property. You Something happens inside your brain. It's... Very, it, it's like very palpable. Uh, and just to pause you there, a question that often comes up when we talk about this. Do we own this? Is this, you know, governed by historical things? Um, an interesting thing about the, you know, Pennsylvania is it's an oil state. Oil and steel. Yeah. I mean, clearly not so much anymore. But the laws that were written you know, hundreds of years ago about land ownership include mineral rights. They're very much catering to the very wealthy landowners and and oil barons and steel barons Mm -hmm. who were trying to grab as much land as possible so they could take all the natural resources and make a lot of money. Now, the the exception in this case, uh, and, and a lot of the reason for the exception came actually out of some of what happened in Philadelphia in the 70s, is if it's a federally funded project, it's mandated that you have to do an archaeological study before you do any work, um, which I, I don't know, but I think if we had gotten that federal loan, we might have hit a snag. But because we, we paid- bought the... The whole thing with cash. Right, we paid uh, all the cash we had to buy this house. There's no federal or local oversight um, over what comes out of the ground. The only exceptions to fines like this, aside Mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. if you take federal funding, is if you find human bones, of course, (laughs) you have to call the coroner and uh, they have to be, you know, investigated, even if they're hundreds of years old, because... 
in general, lay people can't tell how old a skeleton is. Um, so that's one exception. And the other exception is if you find Native American artifacts mm-hmm. of any kind, you uh, you don't own those outright. This is something that supersedes land ownership. And I mean, quite candidly, we've seen even in the last couple of years in Philadelphia, the enforcement of that is not great. There right. was a building that went up uh, at second and race in the old city district here. Uh, that uh, it turned out was built on an old graveyard. Yeah, they thought that the graveyard had been moved, but much as in the plot of Pet Cemetery, I believe, <laughs> the people who moved it probably over a hundred years ago had moved only the gravestones for some of the graves and had not moved the coffins. So when they went to dig a foundation for a brand new building in this spot, they came across a whole bunch of coffins with rotting corpses inside. And they just kind of tried to cover it up. They put fences up really quickly, but... They're in a neighborhood where you could, uh, you know, from buildings across the street, take photos. And it was with a lot of reluctance that that developer cooperated um, and and did some work to move well, the, that stuff they out. They cooperated very half-heartedly and they only gave uh, the Mutter Museum and some other institutions two weeks to uh, grab all of these coffins and get everything out, which meant that stuff was lost i believe the the bodies were treated disrespectfully they were put into facilities that were not equipped to store rotting human corpses um so there was a degradation of the bodies themselves within the storage facility just a total shit show yeah it was it was really terrible and one of the standout comments to me uh as i was reading stories about this Uh, Somebody had asked, uh, I don't know if it was the Historical Society or one of these preservation alliances in Philadelphia, why this was allowed to happen. And they said, we actually have the power to preserve the cobblestone street next to the lot. We have more power over that than we do these graves, despite all all the things that you hear. Mm -hmm. Um, It's actually, we're kind of relying on the goodwill of this developer. Right. Which is why, I guess, if you care about preservation, good thing a couple of nerds like us own (laughs) this property because uh, most developers would have completely ignored the sort of things that we found or actively tried to hide them in case they caused them any delay. Um, And we were like, hell no, I dig that shit out. This is mine. Let's take a look at it. Let's study it. Let's try and do things right. But I do want to point out, um, when we first bought this property, and in fact, when we were first looking at it, I had a suspicion that it was an old property, and I knew that there might be some opportunity for archaeological excavation. I went online, did some research, found some Philadelphia area archaeologists, uh, emailed a bunch of them saying, hey, we are coming into this piece of land that we think might have some stuff Underground, I think the dirt may have been undisturbed for a while. And we're digging into it yeah. kind of extensively. We would love to have, you know, some, some input or some feedback. And I got no responses. Zero. Which part of me thinks, oh, they must just be really busy and they must get a lot of kooks. Like, there must be a lot of people, <laughs> you know, particularly in a city like Philadelphia that has this long history, who are like, 
oh, I found uh, I found a, a Bobby doll in my backyard and I think it might have been Benjamin Franklin's Bobby doll. You know, I, I feel like that must happen a lot from especially people who watch Antiques Roadshow and think everything in their backyard might be oh, worth yeah. a fortune, you know. And also in, in, in retrospect now, I know that uh, this sort of work doesn't come free. You know, mm-hmm. these folks who are in the field are already not paid nearly enough what they should be. Uh, it's very much a labor of love. And when that's what you do all day, um, it's probably not what you're interested in doing in evenings and weekends. Right. And um, some complete strangers saying, will you help advise me for free is probably not what you want to be doing. I sympathize. But <laughs> I want to put it out there that th- we weren't necessarily just going in totally blind Right, Um, we had tried to get professional help, and professional help not being available, we did the best we could with our internet research skills and our gung-ho attitude. Yeah, so... (laughs) So... Back to it. Fever. Total (laughs) fever, right? And at this point, I went from trying to be the person who puts the brakes on and says, whoa, we should maybe wait because the contractor said no, to... Fuck it. Let's get in the wall. (laughs) (laughs) So so I had, you could see when you were in the pit itself, it's about six feet deep. And so your your eye level with the dirt uh, that has been cut away on the wall of of the pit. And you can see within the dirt pieces of pottery just kind of sticking out. Oh, it it was... There was so much detail, like it was incredible just looking in this pit and, and from top to bottom, it just looks like it's... It's it's full of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's full of, sh- of shit and uh, important shit. Speaking of important and shit, we, we talk about this like it's feces. Everything has decomposed. It's composted. Right. It, it doesn't smell. It doesn't smell. smell. <laughs> It's just pure dirt with lots of pottery in between. (laughs) Um, So I start pulling pieces out of the wall of this pit, uh, out of the privy part. And some of the pieces that I pull out are really big, like bigger than my hand. Um, Huge kind of plate-looking structures. Like, it's still broken. Like, everything gets compressed in the privy. And so all of the pottery that I'm pulling out is broken, but big pieces of it. And so much of one piece that you think, I think I could put this back together again. I might have all of the pieces of, of this plate. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm standing up top, just, like, collecting this, trying to wipe it off. And Nursing see. your back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm actually very jealous um <laughs> that, that i can't get in there and do this um but I, i'm seeing uh, an even wider variety of stuff that's coming out mm-hmm. one of the coolest pieces that i pulled out at this point yeah almost immediately yeah was um was a clear glass something um and when i pulled it out and sort of brushed some of the muddy shit away from it i realized it was a piece of stemware uh, it was really recognizable. You could see there's a base and a stem and uh, the bottom of the vessel. And then it had it had broken around the rim. So I didn't have the rim pieces. Uh, but we later learned that this was a, an 18th century trumpet wine glass. And it, in the stem part, just underneath where the, the bowl, where the wine would go is, there was a teardrop-shaped air bubble. Um, which is so cool because part of me is like, that's air from the 18th century in that. (laughs) (laughs) 
that like I don't think I've ever held a glass that old. Mm-hmm. Like you, you passed it up, and I remember I just kept looking at it. Um, it it had the pontal scar at the bottom, right? So, so it's it was clearly, clearly hand blown, right? Um, that's probably yet- someone's breath in the middle. <laughs> it's someone breathed into that, and it's still there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, um what else more bones oh yeah the, all animal bones so i'm i feel really confident in this in some ways because um a really long time ago in another life i actually started a medical degree i thought i was going to become a doctor for a hot minute and then i discovered that um i hated it and uh i would make a really shit doctor so i quit um but one of the things that i did before i quit was take some anatomy classes and you know and i had done sort of a general survey of the skeleton plus one of the reasons i wanted to become a doctor was i wanted to be a forensic pathologist so i had a real interest in forensic pathology (laughs) and identifying human bones so all of the bones that we were pulling out i could pretty much straight away tell that's not human. Like the teeth were too big to be human. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I could, oh, this is a jawbone of some creature, but it's definitely not a person. It's it's um, a herbivore of some kind. And uh, I found uh, an entire rat skull in the privy area. So so clearly someone had killed a rat and thrown it in the privy, or maybe the rat had maybe just the rat fell, in. fell in and died. What a horrible way to die. And I was completely delirious by that stage. I mean, I was so delighted with this rat skull. It's a great example of rodent teeth, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, When Melissa handed it up to me, uh, I was fiddling with the skull, and the tooth uh, just curls up into the skull. Right, it's almost like a semicircle. Oh, it's it's awful, but... (laughs) Um, that's why, you know, with hamsters and rabbits and all that, you get something for them to chew on because the, the teeth are just constantly growing. Mm-hmm. And they grow right back up into their head. Yeah. And they just keep coming out. It's kind of weird. So we've got cat and rat. And-, and we also pulled out a whole ton of this kind of pottery that is called redware. Uh, redware was extremely common uh, up and down the East Coast in the 18th century. Um, and it's extremely common because it's, pretty easy to make. It's made out of the same kind of clay that you make bricks out of, which is why it's called redware. So it's a red clay. And it's really common to find it in the ground. So people came to America, they saw this useful clay, they dig it out, uh, form it into a pot or a plate or a chamber pot or a gallon jug, uh, glaze it, fire it, Congratulations, you have a useful vessel. And a funny thing about redware, though, is that technically during this period, during the um, most of the of the 1700s, it was illegal for them to make it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the The whole point of Philadelphia was to be a colony that consumed goods that England sold. Right. Um, it was a money-making venture for the British Empire, and one of the ways the British Empire made money. And one of the reasons that the Revolutionary War was for it is because Britain said, uh, America, you're not allowed to make your own goods. You have to buy them from Britain at high prices. Right. We just want uh, your raw materials. Right. Ship them to England and then we'll make stuff and then you have to buy it back from us. But of course, potters were like, oh, fuck you. I'm just going to dig this clay out and make a bowl. Like, you can't stop me. Geographically speaking, um, the southeast corner of Pennsylvania, um, even into central PA, 
There's just so much clay. Wherever you, can't you dig, make a you're garden. pulling up. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> you, you have to build boxes above the ground right. because you dig under the topsoil and it's just this red clay and this yeah. brown clay yeah. everywhere. And so when you find redware in Philadelphia, that means that it's locally made in all likelihood. Um, and people find a lot of it. In privies, in archaeological digs, it's one of the most common things that you can find. But we were finding a lot of it in our privy, and some of it were like big pieces of redware that were clearly large vessels of some kind. Not only are we pulling out a lot of redware, uh, we're also finding pieces that are similar in color to that navigation piece, this, mm-hmm. this white uh, ceramic. Right, it's soft paste porcelain is what it's called. Yeah, it's not you- like porcelain like you know today necessarily, but it's... It's it, it British made mm-hmm. white white clay porcelain of some kind. The reason I bring this up now is as we're digging in this pit, not only are we finding brick colored pottery and this white colored pottery, part of the fill of the privy were bricks. Actual bricks. And uh pieces of brick and perhaps more maddeningly oyster shells. Yeah. So Oyster shells are white, and you will be astonished <laughs> when you see an oyster shell next to a genuine piece of pottery in a pile of shit, how completely unable you are to distinguish them by sight. Like, they look exactly the same. Oysters are so beautiful i guess on the inside and they look almost man-made sometimes like you see patterns and then you pull out this piece and you're like oh it's it's another, it's oyster, another shell. oyster shell um so at this time um there was a huge obviously uh trade in oysters people were eating them a ton uh and uh getting them i believe often from the chesapeake um there was a huge trade of you know buying oysters from the chesapeake bay and bringing them to philadelphia some people have told us that there's there were oysters in the the delaware there may, at the time. Oh, there may well have been local oysters as well there certainly are not anymore no. but uh there may well have been at the time and there were so many oyster shells in this privy like Tons. At first, I started collecting them, thinking they were kind of cool. And then I was like, fuck oysters, throw them away. There are too many oysters. I heard an apocryphal story. I say it's apocryphal because I've I've never actually had someone confirm this, but (laughs) I kind of love the story. Anyway, my friend told me that um, she had heard that people used oyster shells as a form of toilet paper back in the day. Because there was no toilet paper, right? Right. And I there mean, were a lot of oyster shells. There were a lot of oyster shells, and it might sound kind of painful, but it's probably better than just pulling your pants back on, you know, after you've taken a giant poop in the bog. And, and you know, the funny thing about this is when when we heard this, uh, something kind of clicked in my head. You know how they've got those shell-shaped soaps in bathrooms? <laughs> I've always, since I was a kid, it made no sense to me. This is Demolition man. <laughs> um, you know, at least at least where I've grown up in in and around Pennsylvania and Maryland. Uh-huh. No, um, it's the thing. It's like your you guest soap. Yeah, your guest soap is looks like a cockle shell. And it's, I mean, this is why I think this has to be true. Right. This is an evolution of 
eventually we we became a little more civilized. Right. Uh, we moved away from shells. We haven't quite gotten to the bidet stage of civilization. Right. In America, um, no. But but you would put shells in the bathroom so that you, you just could, left shells there. Right. For, so you yeah. could scrape off your gross bits and drop the shell into the giant pit and all is well. And so this just sort of became decoration. Maybe. Sort of an appendage. And a joke in a movie about the future <laughs> yeah. that I really liked when it first came out, but I don't know. Um, I was a weird kid. So I pulled a bunch of stuff out of the walls of the construction pit and uh, I noticed after some time doing this that the walls of the pit that I was in were starting to look a little misshapen. They didn't <laughs> look like they did when we started digging. And so then I kind of reached a point where I was like, Matt, I think that we we're gonna have to like pull back yeah. and and you know reshape the walls so it looks kind of like it did uh, because I don't want Larry to get mad at me and and I don't want <laughs> we don't want to mess up construction. I, yeah. he said not to do this. Right, and and we're being a little naughty, but right. The the the, the nice workers spent a long time and a lot of sweat and and effort and you know doing these pits for us and I don't want to just come in here overnight and wreck it. Mm-hmm. So we took everything that we'd found in this pit so with redware this uh the stemware the glass stemware the wine bottle some more broken wine bottles um the bones there was so much there was actually a, a couple of buckets full yeah, yeah. of stuff and, uh, and, and we just commandeered some of the buckets that were on site. That's <laughs> right. Some of the construction buckets, like Home Deep- Depot buckets that the construction workers had left behind because we didn't think to bring buckets. We brought sifters, but not buckets. We didn't realize how the volume. much. Yeah. <laughs> and we put it all into our Mini Cooper and uh, we drove back to Downingtown uh, out in the suburbs an hour out of Philadelphia. And then we started to wash. <laughs> Yeah, it was mostly me, I will say, um, because Matt has a a job, <laughs> a job that now uh, I, I was riding the train an hour and fifteen minutes each way. Yeah, so, that uh, really sucked for you. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's what we did when we first moved out there. Uh, it's it's funny moving from the the exurbs. I grew up in York County, and every year I would put twenty thousand miles in my car just from living <laughs> and mm-hmm. moving. Then into Downingtown and being like, oh, wow, there's a train, like three minute walk from my house and I can just ride the train into to work. It's it's an hour, but somebody else is driving and then moving into the city uh, and uh, being able to walk to yeah, work. It was like a 40 minute walk, but I loved it because I was walking and then you move back out and what had seemed like this this sort of urbanized move uh, after living in the city. I'm like, it is so quiet. There's nothing here, <laughs> and I am so sick of riding the train. Mm-hmm. Every day is like 10, 11 hours a- away from home um, for no good reason beyond I'm stuck on a train schedule. Mm-hmm. We're such urbanized hipsters now, it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> so Matt is at work, and I have a new fever. My new fever is washing 200 plus year old shit 
off of broken pieces of pottery in my kitchen sink in Downingtown. Uh, the wife washing dishes. Yeah, well. that's all I did all day. Like a washerwoman, I had my rubber gloves on and I had my soap and a brush and a bunch of little dental tools that I picked up at Ollie's Outlet. And, uh, and I had a bunch of different sort of chemicals that I was experimenting with to see what would get things clean. I had, I'd done some Googling and, you know, different museum websites were like, you know, you can try vinegar, you can try a weak uh, muriatic acid dilution, uh, you can try hydrogen peroxide for some stains and for some issues. Uh, you can, you know, find things that dissolve away rust and things like that. So I was cleaning each piece laboriously in the sink with a toothbrush, scrubbing the edges particularly because I wanted to be able to put things back together. And then I spread out a bunch of uh, tablecloths on the floor of the kitchen and I started organizing and cataloging everything that I washed by color. Uh, so white things go over here and redware with dark glaze goes here, redware with lighter glaze goes here and things with stripes go here and things without stripes here. Um, and I spread out all of these artifacts across probably like at least six foot square <laughs> through the kitchen and into the living room. This is literally all day the next day. Um, we had done this dig on a Thursday night. I went back to work Friday and I come home and Melissa has cleaned and assembled all the things that we had found. Right, but most of them didn't turn into whole pieces. Mm -hmm. Most of them, like I would, I could tell I had six different sherds that came from the same plate and I could put together four of them and two of them went together, but there was, there was too much missing for me to be able to assemble the plate. And I just knew that there was more of this plate left in that pit. <laughs> oh yeah. You we know? knew like it was full of stuff and we're here with three quarters of a plate right? and three quarters of a bowl. Right. Oh, there was like a big redware piece. Uh, one of the first things that we found and it looked like it was going to turn into an enormous bowl because the pieces were really hefty and chunky. Um, and it was maybe, maybe half there, mm -hmm. but there were big missing pieces. And you could tell from the way it was broken that the pieces that were missing were also big and and we could find them in the privy. It, it would be there. Yeah. So we kind of looked at each other and said... We have to go back in. Yeah. We can't just leave it like this. How yeah. are we supposed to live the rest of our lives thinking, oh, look, I found most of a plate mm. and probably the rest is still there, but I was scared and I didn't go looking and maybe it was right there under the surface like our fingers might have brushed it and we didn't we didn't take it we didn't find it and even though uh, we had been told at this point that you know filling this pit was imminent mm -hmm. um this was friday right they hadn't done it on the friday they, they don't work on weekends yeah so tomorrow saturday sure let's go and and do some more sifting we'll just sift we'll, we'll just sift we won't we won't touch anything. Yeah. We won't damage anything. Maybe I'll go back into the pit and just take little <laughs> things out of the wall. Like, just a, just a little thing that isn't going to, you know, yeah. ruin the, the construction. It'll be fine. Well, let's do it. I mean, we were really excited. We'll be excited. very careful. Yeah, yeah, super careful. It'll be great. So we go in on mm -hmm. the Saturday. 
And uh, we bring better lighting this time. Yes, and more buckets. More buckets. And we still have our sifters and we start working the same way that we did before. And I, I tell you, it gets worse. Oh. Um, oh. I, I find uh, that, that piece that I found that said navigation, I found another piece. It says trade. <laughs> and it's from the same bowl. Like it's, it's really obviously thing. from the same bowl. It says trade. I think I might have found another piece of the bowl. It didn't say anything on it, but I recognize the floral pattern. Right. We're just pulling more huge chunks out. And I go down into the pit. Matt's back is still playing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'm picking at the walls and I'm trying to be real careful, but it's like this weird fever because you see the corner of a piece and you're like, well, just tug this out. And then you tug it out. And in the gap left by the piece that you tug out, you see another corner of another little piece of pottery and you tug that. And then that comes out. And then there's a huge piece behind all of that. And so you're like, well, I have to get in there to, to, to get that piece. I mean, what if it's it's important. Yeah, and they're getting more interesting mm-hmm. uh, as we get larger pieces and more complete pieces. Uh, I remember that day posting to Instagram one particular dish that you pulled out most of. Right. Um, it's like a, a little saucer. Yeah. Um, like maybe five or six inches in mm-hmm. diameter. And most of it was there. Um, yeah. Like it was just missing kind of an edge. And what was different about this and I, I thought really exciting um it wasn't just patterns and, and and the design wasn't a simple design somebody drew uh, a little asian caricature a little chinese man i, I call it a little racist drawing <laughs> um because it didn't look chinese it looked like someone had sort of um let me explain a little bit <laughs> So during this period of time, the British Empire had obviously, you know, touched China and done terrible things to China by this point. And th- there was trade going back and forth between Britain and China. China was a huge producer of hard paste porcelain. They were making basically the same kind of bowls that you see in Chinese restaurants now. It's sort of amazing that the design and the essential uh, means of manufacture of these bowls has not changed for hundreds if not thousands of years. Britain loved this stuff and so they bought it by the shipful and it was the most expensive porcelain that you could buy. Well, nobody in the West had figured out how to make it. Exactly. The reason it was fine China mm -hmm. was because you could only get it from China. Right. And uh, the people making it in China would not give up their secrets to the British uh, the secret formula and the the exact recipe and the exact you know temperature that you had to fire it at and all of these things. In Britain, however, the high cost of this Chinese porcelain meant that people were trying to copy it and trying to crack the formula, almost like alchemists, trying to figure out how to make proper hard paste porcelain. And they failed. They failed a lot, constantly. They would make instead what's known as soft paste porcelain, which is, um, it's white. So they did get a white clay, but it doesn't have that really glassy texture that Chinese hard paste porcelain has. But what they did to make it look more expensive is they drew a whole shit ton of Chinese stuff on it in the glaze. So they would, they would, put blue stuff on the glaze because Chinese porcelain often had blue colored uh, uh, decorations. decorations. And then they would make 
little chinoiserie designs all over it so they'd draw like a little house with a pointy roof like they had in China or they would draw you know little Chinese patterns like you know uh, like those square cornered maze patterns around the edges so it would sort of look Chinese and then they could pretend like it was more expensive it's yeah the equivalent of buying from Target it looks nice but it's imitating a very expensive thing that is actually higher quality. <laughs> right, it's not made out of compressed wood. But, you know, you don't have to be finicky. If no, it, it, it looks nice, it gets the job done. Sure. Well, you feel look- better about yourself. <laughs> Retail I- therapy has gone back for a long time. <laughs> but I mean, this this so this plate yeah, was yeah. clearly a European creation, but it had a picture of a, a little man with, you know, um, a robe on um, standing in a watery environment like a rice paddy right right or (laughs) you know because they have a ton of water in china it's a thing (laughs) i mean you're still in the period where people are drawing lions and they have no idea what a lion actually is yeah there's also like bull rushes in the in the watery area because that's a very chinese thing too Mm. i guess i'm half chinese by the way in case you can't tell so i this is sort of a weird sore point for me that this was all happening. Anyway, yeah, I pulled this out of the privy and it was stained this gross brown color. But you could tell from the broken edges that it was white underneath. Yeah. Um, and it immediately stood out. I remember sort of assembling it on site and being like, oh man, we've almost got the whole thing. And I took a picture. It was really exciting. So our attempt to just be nice about this and just take a few things out was uh, wholly in vain. Yeah, but we didn't go whole hog. We sort of, we still had Larry's voice echoing in our ears saying, and, and we're still also thinking of our pocketbooks and thinking, you know, well, if we mess it up. What does that even mean? How much extra is that going to cost yeah. us? And we don't have any money. So we really, we can't do too much. <laughs> we pulled as much out of the wall as we could. And then I remember haphazardly trying to like put dirt back into the walls and- you had been digging at the bottom <laughs> That's right. like you've been sort of like oh but you know the concrete will just fill in that void <laughs> it's okay if we pull it out and i yeah at the end you you dug a lot deeper into the wall that than I, I think you intended to uh, yes. and you're trying to just like, like shove it me, in give me buckets of, of, <laughs> of soil i'm just gonna push it back push push the poop back into the little hole that i dug oops <laughs> So, so we, we came back to Downingtown with more buckets of stuff, mm-hmm. more than we had collected the first time. And once again, I put on my rubber gloves yeah. and I got to work washing in the kitchen while Matt was at work all day. <laughs> and after I washed everything that we had found uh, and spread everything out on, on the kitchen floor, I did a little bit of Googling and I found a museum website that said that one way to repair broken ceramics is to use two-part epoxy. So uh, you might have seen two-part Gorilla Glue. You can buy it at any hardware store or even Kmart or Walmart. Um, You mix together the two parts of the glue, it smells like cancer, and then you dab it and hold it together and it sets in about five minutes. So I bought a ton of tubes of two-part glue and I set to work gluing together all the parts of the pottery that I could tell were meant to fit together. Um, oh, and one good thing about two-part epoxy is if you make a mistake, it's easy to reverse it. It mm-hmm. um, becomes unset if you heat it up. So 
most pottery can withstand being heated up in, in water. So you can easily sort of put a pot on the stove and put it in there and, and the glue will come apart. Um, so I spent some time totally fucking high on glue f- fumes, bent over on the floor, like with my hair all undone and my hands sticking to themselves and completely focused for, I'm not even kidding here, 18 hours a day because I was so obsessed with this incredible jigsaw puzzle. Like, (laughs) you have no idea what, what a joy this is because I've always been good at jigsaw puzzles, but I fucking hate them because at the end of a jigsaw puzzle... What have you fucking achieved? Like fucking nothing. There's a there's a dumb picture that someone already cut apart for you and you just put it back together again, but you it's like pointless. It's so pointless. So finally, there's this incredibly difficult jigsaw puzzle. You don't even know if you have all the pieces. And at the end of it, there's a point because you get a, you may get a whole piece of 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 pottery um that you get to keep it's incredible anyway yeah a, a funny thing we discovered when we were sort of researching our own work planning as, this as we're episode going into this um <laughs> melissa mentioned working 18 hours a day on this sort of thing she had a bit of a time dilation issue uh i have no fucking idea <laughs> Like that whole period, I was ignoring everything. We were talking about this and she's like, so I was working on this for a week and I had to actually show her timestamp photos to convince her that we were done assembling this by we, I mean, she was done assembling this by Monday. So we went in on the dig on what, Thursday? Uh-huh. And then Saturday. The and then Saturday. Mm-hmm. And you had cleaned and assembled everything. Everything that we had so far. By Monday. Okay. This is makes no, <laughs> this makes no sense like, to me. And because I swear it was more than that. It, like, it, it was a lot of stuff. Like usually archaeologists take fucking six months to do this work. <laughs> and there's just something wrong with me. Uh, anyway. <laughs> well, and, and this, this ties into what we talked about before is this is all stuff that's happening on the side of our lives. I'm working full time. You've got commissions. You've got work that. You're oh, I doing. was mostly just procrastinating my PhD, which is also mm-hmm. a really great. W- if you want to achieve, like, really achieve shit, <laughs> try getting a, a PhD in a different subject, <laughs> and then you will be completely inspired to do the most amazing shit in every other area of of your life. Constructive, it's, productive procrastination. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so um by monday we've we've got all this stuff put together and we i i don't remember what it is but we were like we have to just get this out of the way we got to finish it and uh, melissa had uh even gone out she had gone to the container store bought all this uh this plastic where to put these things in uh, and yeah i spent like i dropped like two three hundred dollars just on tupperware yeah <laughs> And uh, also put together uh, from Ikea knickknacks and from spare paper, put together a light box. We decided, let's let's put a cap on this. Right. We're we'd, done. We'd seen pictures online of how people take professional photography of artifacts and you sort of create a light box with a curved piece of paper so there are no shadows and corners and then while this was going on um there was a lot of news actually about uh the 
construction of uh, just around the corner from us, probably a you know a ten minute walk, the Museum of the American Revolution mm-hmm. uh, in Old City. And there's there's a whole lot of backstory about how it got there, but the main point being, it turned out to be a huge archaeological dig because it was a federally funded thing, and they had to do that mandatory uh, archaeological survey, and they found so much stuff, and they were just starting to publish this online. So I'm looking through this, and I'm seeing these photos laid out, and I'm like, I'm just going to copy this. Right. So let's. Uh, uh, I, I literally took one of the markers where it has like the inches at the top and the scale. centimeters at yeah. the bottom. Um, I took one of the photos, cropped that image in Photoshop, straightened it out, retraced it, uh, and printed it uh, a new one based off of literally a photo from the Museum of the American Revolution. Thank you, Museum of the American Revolution. We owe you a lot in our process here. And that comes around later. It's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> so uh, we're like, all right. Let's put a ribbon on this. Right. We'll take photos and uh, and maybe that'll be it. Our, our historical journey is done. This right. is super cool. I want to live here. Let's just move on. Unfortunately, our plan to cure our obsession and move past this and get on with our lives did not work at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> we, we took the lovely photos and uh, we looked at them and we thought... Wow, some of these photos look really awesome, and I'm, it's amazing that we own this stuff. And uh, well, you you had a crack at talking to some more archaeologists at this point. At the time, uh, I was working basically across the street from the National Seaport Museum. Uh, the street, uh, unfortunately, being 95, so it is a bit of a walk. Uh, you have to cross a bridge. Uh, it's all good. I, I get there. I, I walk to the front desk, and I say, "Hey, I'm not really here." To, to go into the museum, I, I still need to get there. We'll, we'll do that one day. Um, <laughs> but I showed them on my iPhone uh, these lightbox photos that we took, and I said, we're just a few blocks from here, and we're finding what we think is some pretty neat stuff. Who do I talk to about this? And I think they gave me uh, the, the business card of the curator. Uh, I was like, oh, great, perfect. Thank you very much. I go back to work, and I email the curator right away. And I, I attach uh, a couple photos. I don't know that we had posted them on Flickr yet. Uh, and I said, hey, who do I talk to for help? Because right. I think we've got more of this stuff, and we don't have a lot of time. Because we're already apparently behind schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, although, no fault of ours at this point. No, no, it was it was totally beyond our control. But yeah. anyway. But at any point, I'm expecting our contractors to fill this pit with concrete. Right. And? He uh, he writes back and uh, he was very busy. Um, <laughs> so meanwhile, I'm thinking, look, I'm I'm at the University of Pennsylvania and one of the museums that we actually had been to in town is the Penn Museum. It's a really cool museum. They have an incredible Egypt display full of stuff that they looted in the 1930s. And, you know, I figured they would have archaeologists at sure. my university so I, with my pen email, sent an email to the Penn Museum and said, hey, I'm, I'm getting a PhD here at Penn in music, but I'm the owner of this property and we've discovered a privy full of artifacts. 
is there someone I can talk to about about this? Is someone somewhere I, you know, what do you suggest that I do? We would love some kind of support or maybe this would be a great learning opportunity for students um, and, and, you know, something, anything. And someone at the Penn Museum directed my email to a faculty member in the anthropology department who specialized in American colonial period. And uh, she wrote, got back to me and said, no, I really don't have any use for this project for my students this semester. Thanks anyway. So it's up to us. We're on our own. <laughs> We're very much on our own. And uh, well, at this point also, I I felt I was getting kind of desperate for some kind of help. Mm-hmm. Um, so I posted on Facebook and said, does anybody know any archaeologists <laughs> who might be able to help us uh, with information about artifacts from the colonial period that we're finding on our construction site. And uh, one of my friends, Frank... Shout out Frank Bellina. Hi, Frank. Uh, one of our friends said, yeah, you should get in touch with this guy I know, George. He's known as Digger George, and he digs on archaeological sites, and maybe he would be a help. So I friend this guy on Facebook, George, and I reach out to him and he says, oh, yeah, he's been digging privies for years. And uh, I, fa- I actually found a blog where he talked about digging a huge privy in Baltimore. And there was a lot of stuff coming out of that privy that looked almost identical to the artifacts that we had coming out of mine. Yeah, it was so- kind of funny. It was like, oh, wait, that's the guy right like we had read about this right, right this right. is awesome so so this is great he must know what he's doing this is fantastic uh we contacted the our contractor and said you know are you going to fill in the pits before this weekend and they said no go ahead we're we're held up because of some reason so i said george why don't you come on saturday night and uh and we'll take a look at the privy with you and you're much more experienced at this so so that'll be helpful Everything was set in motion again. Yeah, we're going back in. Um, we also talked with our contractor and we showed him the pictures of the stuff that we had pulled out. And first of all, <laughs> he was completely blown away by the stuff that we had found because he was like, how the fuck did we not see any of this? It was so apologetic. Yeah. Um, and I felt so bad because I'm like, look, you got paid to do a job, which was dig a hole and build a foundation yeah, for this column. You guys dug awesome holes. Right. We didn't hire you to like stop for anything. Right. To dig through the shit that you're pulling out of the holes. Like you're not supposed to be paying attention to the trash that was in the dirt. Yeah. Don't feel bad. <laughs> yeah, but he was looking at this stuff and thinking, like, this is amazing. This is incredible. We also emailed um, the boss of the company, Vince Vince Grosser, and he basically said, fucking dig it all out. Right. Like, like are you kidding me? Fuck the fucking form. Like, just dig, <laughs> dig it all out. Go to town. Yeah. Hell, if, you can't just leave this shit there. So we felt like we had their blessing to mm-hmm. do whatever we needed to do to that privy at that point. The following weekend. July the 2nd, yeah. 2016. Uh, we we go back uh, again, armed with our sieves, more buckets, more lights. Uh, I brought my nice camera, mm-hmm. um, determined to do a better job of documenting. Your back was a little better, but not all the way, yeah. as I recall. So yeah. we still sort of we thought you could help out some on the surface more, maybe um, helping me pull buckets of dirt out of the pit, but probably not the hardest work of sort of digging in the pit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we met George. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so, George is a character. Yeah. He's amazing. He's such a character. So he is, this is a sidebar, but it's actually not a sidebar. There is an underground culture up and down the East Coast of America of privy diggers who, otherwise known as privy pirates, who are not necessarily professional archaeologists, although many of them have so much experience and expertise uh, in in these, these this particular collection of artifacts that, you know, they've done it more than professional archaeologists. And what they do is identify properties where there might be privies and go in and dig those privies. Most of the time with the owners say so. Some of the time they just kind of go in and do it and then return the area to what it looked like before and what you don't know won't hurt you. Sometimes they go on to construction sites where the contractors and the developers would not give a shit if the privies were dug or even looked for. And they go in and they use probes and they find the privies and they dig them out to see if there's anything important in them. And there is a world of internecine politics within this underground culture that we were just starting to taste the edge of at this point. Many archaeologists deeply frown upon this uh, practice. Right. You figure from the standpoint of archaeology, you're being very careful to document the placement of things, you're photographing, you're taking measurements, uh, whereas primarily privy diggers are looking for bottles, they're looking for things, they're They're just scooping things out. Right, they're looking for objects, sometimes for profit, but usually more because they're just really interested Mm -hmm. in this particular... There's a spectrum. Right. It's like the last vestige of the grave-robbing Indiana (laughs) Jones-type archaeology, where you just sort of go in, you're interested in getting stuff out. But, you know... Uh, Many other archaeologists uh, recognize that if it were not for these privy diggers, a lot of these objects would be lost forever. Mm -hmm. Because, as we mentioned, the developers often don't care and, you know, even homeowners often don't care. And the privy diggers kind of go in and rescue them and many times will put these objects into circulation in a way that archaeologists can actually study them. It reduces the loss of information somewhat. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... George. George is a privy digger. He's very well known in the privy digging community. Um, But this was our first time encountering him. If you can imagine this guy, he showed up in in a in a tank top, and he had has arms the size of my thighs, like tree trunk arms. (laughs) Because this guy digs like every weekend. He digs dirt out of the ground. Poop. He walks into our building. And he sees all the piles of dirt. And he's like, oh, if you need help doing this, this is what I do. I dig dirt. I move dirt. Uh, He he goes into this this whole just immediately uh, super talkative guy. Right. He's Um, completely at home in this environment. And we've just met him. We have no idea. He's also spent all day. I think he was at some flea market. Yeah, because um, he also does a lot of salvage work, and mm-hmm. then he uh, he sells his salvage wares at flea markets and uh, and at his own company, Thunderbird Salvage, which plug for Thunderbird Salvage <laughs> here in Philadelphia. We immediately went into some of that politics. So I'm like, oh, I read about that story, and 
it's it's so funny just hearing sort of the back and forth how these these different alliances between privy diggers mm-hmm. come and go mm-hmm. like some privy diggers hate other privy diggers and then they they double cross each other and then they make friends with another faction of privy diggers and you know they're privy digging teams and they're competing with each other and one of them will find a site but they don't want to let the word get out because another team will swoop in and dig the privy before they've even gotten there um, this is all happening completely underground like nobody in the public knows that it's happening because they don't publicize what they're doing because sometimes it's a little bit illegal (laughs) just a little bit (laughs) he's really excited because uh he's telling us you know normally i'm in there doing the digging but i'm just gonna sit back and uh i'll just sort of and I Observant. said, oh, you'll be the manager. Right. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll be the site manager. Because one of the uh, rules of privy digging is if you help out with the digging, you get to split the rewards at the end of the night. Uh, and he, w- it was obvious from the beginning that we were like, these are all of our objects. Like, we're not giving up any of these. Mm-hmm. So he is not going to help us dig if this isn't the kind of deal where he gets to keep some of the objects at the end of the night. So I said, okay, I guess I'm digging. (laughs) Melissa starts digging properly into the wall. Uh, Whereas before, we had just been pulling bits and pieces out. Uh, We'd been sifting stuff uh, up up above in the piles of dirt. Um, Now we're filling buckets, pulling the buckets up. I'm up above ground on the slab, sifting the dirt coming out of the buckets, mm-hmm. uh, and it becomes this this process with right. with George kind George of standing is, behind you. Right, George is in the pit with me, and he's kind of just watching what we're doing, which um you know is actually not a bad plan because digging out a privy can be dangerous work. If you dig the dirt out wrong, you're at risk of the dirt collapsing on top of you and suffocating you to death. And also, you know, he's sort of giving me advice where, you know, get into that corner. Sometimes uh, artifacts sink to the bottom right in the corners. And so you want to really get into the corner. Don't scrimp and, uh, you know, pull on that piece right there because I think that might be a bottle or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So he was kind of behind observing, helping us take pictures. It was very helpful, I think. And I'm so I'm pulling more and more and more stuff out of this privy. It was full of stuff. It was so full of stuff, like more, again, more than we had collected those first two nights combined. So I would get, you know, a bucket full of dirt and I would sift the dirt out and the sieve afterwards would be full. Just clogged. Just full of oyster shells, bones, pottery, Bits glass. Of brick. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> brick and oysters. Whoa. I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> Every single bucketful full of stuff. Mm-hmm. I was pulling, like, again, huge pieces of redware, you know, the size of my head out of the sides of it, of the pit. Uh, and then filling buckets. And then every now and again, I would sort of see a delicate little piece stuck in the wall. And I would be, instead of just throwing it into the bucket, I would be very careful. And then I would call up at Matt uh, and pass it up to him and say, look at this, look at this. And, you know, Matt would categorize it and collect it and put it in a bucket to take home. Yeah, and I'm taking nice photos this time. I brought a tripod since it's so low light and um, just... Uh more and more variety too. Mm-hmm. Well, um, one of the really cool things that you pulled out, uh, still to this day, one of my favorite, uh, a nearly intact, and uh, we'll get into this, I guess, more. Um, but it looked like a 
like a mug. Oh yeah. So I actually um I saw this piece uh before I pulled it out. And uh I believe at some points George got kind of bored sitting behind me and and observing. So he climbed up out of the pit and he was looking at some of the other other pits to see if there was anything in them and you were talking to him about crystal skulls. Uh, and then I would call up and say, "Hey, I found something really cool." And uh you'd come down and have a look and I saw this mug was lying sideways. It was clearly a mug like a vessel about the same size as a mug and there was a pretty little strap handle on the side of it um, and it was unglazed on the outside uh, but there was a green glaze on the lip and going into the mug but it was kind of perfectly sitting on the surface of the last scoopful of dirt that I had pulled out so we took some pictures of it before I pulled it out yeah so we could see what it looked like in situ and uh, this this is where George suddenly snaps to attention mm-hmm. his jumps. eyes get huge Mm -hmm. he jumps into the pit and i pull it out and it's almost completely whole Mm. it has what looks like a bite taken out of it out of one part of the rim but other than that it's completely whole it looks as i said like a little mug but it has three legs that it sits on so like a little tripoded mug and george I mean, he starts almost hyperventilating. (laughs) Frankly, he started getting a little shifty. Uh, (laughs) He's like, this is worth money. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. This is is worth, I mean, thousands of, uh, and he says, I remember him saying, people people have killed each other over stuff like this. (laughs) The man with melons for biceps. Yeah, this is the moment when I realize, you know, Matt's up on the surface. (laughs) I'm in a hole and I'm like you know, maybe 110 pounds. Um, George is behind me holding a shovel (laughs) and we're standing in a pit that looks like a grave. Nobody knows we're here. Nobody really knows we're here except, I guess, Frank, maybe. Speaking of Frank, like at this point, I had my phone in my pocket (laughs) and I sort of pulled it out surreptitiously and I, I start Facebook messaging Frank and I'm like, hey, Frank. How well do you know this George guy anyway? Just curious. And Frank messages back and says, I don't really know him at all. I just met him once at a coffee shop. (laughs) (laughs) So, in effect, we have a complete stranger. We have a complete stranger. Who's saying things like, this is worth thousands of dollars and people have killed over things like this. Yeah. Yeah. And he won't stop going on about the Pipkin. Oh, (laughs) he he was so excited. Uh, And I'm I'm just talking him through it. Just talking through like... (laughs) Just, just keep him talking. Yeah, just keep him. We're oh, all the friends craftsmanship, here. Craftsmanship, you can tell it's handcrafted. Like this is artisanal. This is unique. This, this is. is we we got to put this in an auction house. Yeah. We got to make a ton of money off of this. This is this is all happening at nighttime, and it's getting later and later. Oh wait, before I get to that part of the story, I guess we should talk about. Um, I pulled out in particular one bowl that I got really excited about and I remember again George was out of the pit and you were sort of in the front of the building and I was excited because on the bottom of this piece it was the bottom of a bowl I could see there was a little mark it looked like a circle and then an attached almost like a a, a, a T almost like a plus sign like the female sign but instead of a plus sign it's like a T that's what it looked like to me I was like is this some 
some Korean glyph that I'm unfamiliar with. I, I was like, our first maker's mark. Right. It's like, something. This will be identifiable. Right. So we took pictures of it immediately. We were very excited because most of the of the pottery that we pulled out didn't have any kind of identifying mark on it. And again, this one had a design on it. Right. There was like um, a little... Or, or a drawing rather than a design. A like little a, water scene or rock. Yeah. Like a rock scene. I don't <laughs> Again, that chinoiserie thing that I was talking mm-hmm, about, mm-hmm. that kind of deal. Yeah. But other than that, we also had shit tons more pottery. And um, there was actually down in that in the bottom of that privy an entire fucking horse. Like, I mean, here's the <laughs> thing about privies, right? It's and I forget if we talked about this before, but um, you didn't have garbage collection in the 18th century you threw all your garbage into the privy or into the street so i mean or, the streets are, are disgusting yeah. at this time like it's really difficult to imagine what just walking down the street smelled like <laughs> but but the privy was a receptacle for basically any kind of trash that stank that you couldn't do you couldn't store yeah um so yeah kitchen scraps uh, dead cats and rats that you killed in your household. And then there was this problem with um, with horses. Yeah. Uh, what do you do with horses in an urban environment? When a horse dies. Uh, yeah. Uh, and in, in some research I did later, it, it turns out uh, there was actually this thing where you just, you put the horse in the privy. You throw the whole horse <laughs> down the toilet, flush the horse away, Essentially, I'd, I'd heard it speculated that the uh, automobile revolution couldn't have come at a better time because before that it was uh, horse-drawn carriages and electric trolleys and stuff, but lots and lots of horses in these centralized urban environments and disposal of the horses was getting to be a problem. <laughs> So I, I, when I was digging down there, I kept pulling out, you know, bits of horse, bits of horse legs and horse knuckles and uh, horse, horse skull. jaws. And yeah, then there was, I, I felt around and I actually felt like an entire horse skull pot, but it was, so it was wet and it kind of crumbled away in my hands. So all I got was the jawbone with the teeth still in it. Um, so yeah, that was, there was all this crazy stuff. And we, between me and George telling me what to do, uh, I dug that entire privy completely clean. We found the bottom of that privy. It actually didn't go down much lower than the pit. Um, George is- had been telling us more about this and mentioned that like some of these privies go 20, 30, 40, 40. feet deep. Yeah, they can be incredibly deep. Um, but as I was digging, I sort of said, I've hit this hard layer and George poked around and said, "Oh, this is limestone. We've hit we've hit some kind of barrier, uh, and the bricks at the edges have stopped. So this is the bottom of this privy. You don't have to keep digging." Which it I only was, went down like six feet. Right. I was so glad about because I was freaking exhausted at this point. My <laughs> arms are dropping off. Yeah, and so then I dug into all of the top corners that I had missed and the bottom corners, and I cleaned this whole thing out by myself. Oh, 110 pounds <laughs> of me dug out an entire privy that was probably four and a half feet in diameter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <sighs> anyway, um, so George behind me as I'm finishing digging, he's 
turning around and facing the other way and looking at the privy on the other side mm-hmm. of the pit, which... Um, there wasn't really anything in the walls of that one. Right. We sort of poked around and there was not like this first privy, which was packed full of stuff. This other privy looked kind of empty. We there was like ash. Right. It didn't look like... And here's the thing with privies. Let me explain this a little bit. Back in the 18th century, when you had a privy, every now and again, what you were supposed to do is call a night soil men group. Um, These are are tradesmen who will come to your house and with buckets and ropes and going into your toilet, they will empty your toilet of shit and garbage. And horses. Uh, And horses. Like, the worst fucking job in the world. You think chimney sweeps have it bad? I would 100% rather be a nine-year-old in a chimney than a nine-year-old in a fucking shit pit (laughs) with a bucket trying not to vomit or pass out and pulling buckets of of feces, um, which was at the time, as you might have guessed from the name, which was, um, what's the word? euphemistically called night soil Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) it's called night soil because during the night you poop into your chamber pot in the house and then in the morning you come out and you dump your chamber pot into the toilet the bog house pit so these uh these night soil men would come and and clean your your pit out every now and again but here's the thing. Sometimes people let it go. It's kind of it's sort of the same way as people let chimneys go. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they they it gets so bad that they stop using that toilet and they dig a new toilet. And uh, it really depends on how often the owners of a privy cleaned out their privy with night soil men. Um, that will determine how many artifacts you have in your Mm. privy and how old the artifacts are if they never clean their privy which is clearly what happened with this first privy (laughs) you get you might get stuff that's really old um the privy behind me the privy that george was looking at at this point um was pretty empty so Mm -hmm. they might have cleaned it out you know completely before filling it in that's what it seemed like but as we're wrapping up as as melissa's finished she's collapsing in exhaustion uh, George is like, oh, let's see what's in this other privy. And we're like, you know, uh, it doesn't look like there's a whole lot in there and we don't really have time to 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 clean out an entire new privy. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, um, do you mind if I just dig a little bit into the floor right here? And we said, okay, okay, just just, here's a little trowel, like just dig a little bit. He digs down about a foot and he starts pulling out some pieces of 18th century redware. Then he went out to his truck and he brought in a probe. Right. And it was, a probe is like a long pointy piece of metal. I think it was a a six foot probe that he brought in. Um, And it's got like a T-bar at the top. So you push it down into the soil, and if it goes in really easy, that means that it's sort of a fill. Uh, and if you hit a harder patch, you've probably hit the bottom of the privy. So he goes to the floor where he's been digging, and he found this redware, and he pushes the probe in, and the floor of that privy eats the probe. <laughs> the whole probe. 
So that privy goes down much deeper. That's not a six-foot privy. It's somehow, it's more than that. It's much more than that. It's at least, you know, 11 or 12 feet and probably deeper. We don't know how deep it is. Um, But as I said, like, this was too much. This is Mm. too much. Um, And we were exhausted. And so we said to George, leave it alone. Yep. We, we, uh, we're done here. Like we've had a really good haul and he, he was enthusiastic. He's like, this is one of the, the best privy digs I've seen. Um, and I'm like, and it's, that's great. You know what? We had a lot of fun in, in, in a couple hundred years. Let some future archeologists who are digging through the ruins of our house, find this other privy, let them have fun with it. That'll be fine. Yeah. It'll be fine. Uh, and we somehow convinced him to leave it alone. Yeah. And then, you know, I started sort of thinking like, you know, I I wanted George to leave first (laughs) because I wanted to have some time with you to catalog Mm -hmm. what we had. And I just felt safer. (laughs) (laughs) George kept saying, I have to get up at five o'clock tomorrow morning to go to do a flea market. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, well, it's 2.30 in the morning. You should probably leave. And eventually he got so tired that he did leave. Mm Mm-hmm. And at two thirty in the morning, you and I we we put everything together. We um, questioned whether having this stranger who told us about things that uh, slightly illegal things, that slightly he's done. illegal things, uh, he can tell you. We're not going to spoil it. You know, he was an interesting guy, but he was uh, sort of on the edge. <laughs> he's sort an amazing character. There. I mean, I'm so glad I know George, but <laughs> also like, wow. <laughs> First impression. I'm not going to lie, George. I thought you're going to come back and steal our tools. <laughs> on the back of the head i'm so glad he didn't and i'm sure he's you know, not that kind of guy not at all he's, he's totally we yeah he's not a yeah he's not a dangerous person but um yeah so we we took all of our buckets i remember on my lap in the car in the mini cooper on the way home i was carrying uh the three-legged mug that we had found and also a little black teapot that yeah. we had found that i thought was really really cool looking um i was like cradling them in my hands and we had the buckets with everything else in the back and we drove back to Downingtown, and i started again <laughs> with the washing i put on my rubber gloves and i got all my tools together i was so good at washing up old old ceramics at this point i was freaking amazing at doing the old dishes the bowl i didn't mention the bowl which had the little mark on the bottom was stained really brown just like the saucer that had the little racist caricature man on it and uh i was trying to get this brown stain off because i could tell that it used to be white underneath uh and i tried so many things i tried hydrogen peroxide i tried obviously soaking in warm soapy water i tried a ton of different things and nothing worked so i finally used a very diluted muriatic acid and uh, and they came back to kind of a cream color and you could see the design really clearly on both of the insides of these of these two pieces and you could see the little mark on the bottom uh, i was still confused as to what it was or what it meant but we figured let's do the work of mm-hmm. putting everything together again we could already tell that we had complete pieces or 95% complete pieces and 
that I mean that really was what sealed it for me. I, I really just wanted one whole piece. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We had several. We we ended up with several and uh, so many other things. But I was like, oh look, a whole plate, awesome. We have a thing. Yeah, I mean the stuff that we brought back with us after that final night was more than the first two nights combined. So oh, yeah, there was you know what. The, the crazy washing up adventure that happened before, this was like multiplied. Uh, you know, now I was spreading out the tablecloths full of artifacts well into the dining room and <laughs> and past that even. And, uh, and I was still spending, you know, 16 to 18 hours a day washing and gluing and putting stuff back together. Uh, we had made uh, more shopping runs, uh, spending what little money we had on shelves at Ikea. Yeah, we bought a ton of Ikea shelving. Um, lined uh, the walls of our little, little house in Downingtown. Like, every single wall had shelving on it. Yeah, it filled with... Floor to ceiling. Tupperware with artifacts. Yeah. Our house was the museum where people come to see them. <laughs> it really was a scream. <laughs> <laughs> So, so it was. It really. It was an insane time. It was just crazy. Um, there was no living. There was only shirts. Uh, f- for you, um, <laughs> I was in an interesting place where uh, my career was shifting. Um, I had moved from a role as a developer into this new position doing sales engineering. So total personality shift in terms of coworkers, even though I'm at the same company and I, I don't have as much time to really dedicate to helping out now. Um, it's, it's a, a different sort of uh, commitment um, and, and also just ramping up to speed on skills like talking. <laughs> That's why he's so good at being on this podcast now. So I appreciate that. Plus, I don't need people. I have jigsaws. It's fine. I don't need people. And we took pictures when everything was assembled. Um, yeah, busted out the old light box we, that we had made. Right. Did it again. And uh, and this time we uploaded everything to Flickr. Yeah. I sat down uh, with, with uh, Photoshop and Lightroom and took care to take really good photos, you know, with my freaking 10-year-old camera at this point. Um, <laughs> but then... You did something kind of great in what little downtime you had at work. Mm -hmm. You know, with things like these unique designs and a a piece with a maker's mark, I knew somebody is going to know what this stuff is. And in trying to do research, I came across a lot of really great articles by a, a group called the Chipstone Foundation. I think they're out of Wisconsin. Wonderful pictures of stuff some of it very much like what we had picked out. Uh, So I went looking for contact information uh, and emailed them. It was a pretty simple email. I think I said something along the lines of, hey, you know, we're here in Philadelphia, close to the waterfront. Uh, We found some stuff. We took some pictures. Check it out. (laughs) Here's a Flickr link. (laughs) And that was in the morning uh, before things really uh, ramped up. By the afternoon, uh, uh, they wrote back. Um, and it was a really nice email. The archaeologists wrote back to you? Amazing. Yeah. This, this, <laughs> okay. Cool. And uh, they, they said something along the lines of, oh, thanks. This is really neat. Uh, we've copied a man named Rob Hunter. He's the editor of Ceramics in America. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, 
cool. Matt sends me a message and says, hey, you know, are you around? I'm like, yes. And you're like, check your Facebook. So within minutes of, of receiving this email, uh, I had received a, a friend request from Rob Hunter. Me too. <laughs> huh, and that's weird. I don't know. The way I do things on Facebook, uh, I don't generally accept friend requests from people that I haven't met in person. It's just sort of a filter that I developed after living through MySpace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but, I mean, this is a, a unique circumstance. You know, I'll give it a shot. So I, I go ahead and accept Rob's friend request, and he immediately messages me. <laughs> he says, hi, Matt. Thanks for the ad. Uh, I sent you an email responding to your note to Chipstone. And I said, oh, I'm just about to hit send on a reply. Uh, his next message to me says, on a 1 to 10 scale, I'm at an 11 plus <laughs> with excitement. Um, so Matt is on, you know, uh, chat and he's relaying this this conversation to me. And I'm like, uh, who is this guy again? This is bullshit, right? Like he's blowing <laughs> smoke up our ass. This is, what does he want? Is Is this a scam? What is this? What? What does he mean by that? So I, I start telling him some of the stuff that I told other people at this point about finding this piece that says navigation and uh, mentioned that Melissa's got a blog entry um, about what we had done in that past month. And uh, he replies that, oh, he's an archaeologist and he's been working with material on the site of the Museum of the American Revolution, as oh, a matter of fact. Just down the road from uh, where our privy is. I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's nice. He writes back and he says, uh, you have some important vessels. You have some stuff from a potter's kiln, uh, kiln furniture. Uh, and we said, yeah, we, we thought that was pretty interesting. He sends a picture of three women holding, like, I don't know, it looks like 60 of one of the things that we have. And I'm like, oh, that's so cool. And he says, yeah, the National Park Service lab is close by. The porcelain objects you have found will be of national interest. <laughs> and um again matt is relaying all of this to me and i'm like bullshit bullshit right. what what are you talking what so does that mean what does that even mean i mean and for me i was thinking how can something be of national importance i've been cleaning it in my fucking sink with dawn <laughs> and hydrogen peroxide i bought at cvs like this what no no it isn't it can't it can't be important I had been operating this whole time on the idea that this stuff was so archaeologically uninteresting and non-valuable because none of the archaeologists would write back to us. So clearly it must be worthless. Um, so that gave me permission to, to clean it in my own sink and pick at it with dental tools to get all the rust spots off. So this was very disconcerting to me. He continues. Uh, he says, you know... We're lucky you took this on. Uh, Philadelphia has a lot of bottle diggers who loot sites. We're <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you don't say. <laughs> uh, uh -huh. uh, we heard about that. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, and then he sends me a link to a Chipstone article. It's about a Bonin and Morris waste bowl. And <laughs> Bonin and Morris. Well, the pictures that were in this article, which Matt immediately sent to me, make it obvious that this Bonnet and Morris waste bowl article is about a bowl that is extremely similar to the bowl that we have with the weird little glyph on the bottom. 
And I can see it in, in the message, the bottom of this bowl. On this one, it's a letter P. And that's what the glyph is on ours. It was just kind of a little bit wonkus, so we didn't recognize it as a P. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, this is awesome. We know who made this, Bonin and Morris. And I, I Google Bonin and Morris. And the first thing that comes up, there's a whole host of responses, but the first thing that comes up is from the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Uh, they had an exhibition back in 2008. And I click through to that page, uh, and there's a, a little shell-shaped vessel that has the same artwork as our little bowl. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, okay. Then uh, it- we were, you know, we, we were a little bit uh, not sure about this guy, but he's clearly he, not making this up. Yeah, he knows, he knows what he's talking about. Cool, cool. And I'm reading, and it talks about how in this 2008 exhibition, they assemble for the first time um, the 19 existing pieces of Bonin and Morris ceramics. Okay, so does that, does that mean that we're 20? Wait, what does that, what... What does that mean? (laughs) It says that this factory was only open from 1770 to 1772. Oh, my God. So that very, very clearly points to exactly when the stuff that we have comes from. Right. At least this bowl, when you assume that everything else is contemporaneous to that bowl. um, Holy shit. It's older than America. (laughs) (laughs) i'm i'm at this point i'm on the train on my way home just madly googling bonin and morris and everything i read i'm like i'm i can feel the blood draining from my face it's really fucking crazy so um Rob finishes, I believe, by sort of saying, you know, he's uh, he's got some work that he has to do for the next couple of days. He's going to be out of town doing some conferences, but he would like to come and see us maybe at some point um, and perhaps bring his partner, Michelle Erickson, who's also involved uh, with ceramic archaeology and is also an incredible ceramicist in her own right with him to check out all of our stuff. And by coming to see us, I mean that he wants to drive five hours from Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia, where he lives, to our house in suburban Downingtown (laughs) to check out our stuff. (laughs) So, just to recap, our fun little side project is of national significance. <laughs> <laughs> um, we we have we have uh, things nobody's seen since the 1770s. Um, and they're made in Philadelphia. Coming up on the next episode, archaeologists come to visit. Let us poison and. The irresistible urge to dive deep into the history of 103 Callowhill Street. I'm Melissa Dunphy. And I'm Matt Dunphy. And you've been listening to The Bog House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. 
The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callahill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review if you like what you hear.